You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's scripture is from Isaiah chapter 51, starting in verse 9 through 52, verse 12. Isaiah 51, verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy you? And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering, There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword, who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God who pleads this cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground, and like the street for them to pass over. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, 
and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart. Depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. This is God's word. Well, good morning, Cormdale. Glad you're here. We will be in that section of Isaiah, so if you have a Bible, uh, keep it open there, chapters 51 and 52. That's where we'll be uh, spending our time this morning as we look at God's Word. About a month ago, we took a men's retreat. Many of you were there, men. And that will be an especially memorable retreat for the men of Room 6. At a retreat like this, of course, as you know, you sleep, you know, 8, 10, 12 guys to room, depending on how the camp is set up. And at the particular camp we went to, there were six rooms in this one lodge of eight beds apiece, and so they were numbered one through six. The men in room six were asleep, two o'clock in the morning or so on Saturday morning, when one of the guys in there started yelling at the top of his lungs. And so immediately all seven of the other guys in there sleeping sat bolt awake and freaked out for a moment. Right, and we're going through scenarios like, is there an intruder I need to attack? Is there a medical emergency? What, what in the world is happening right now? And so one of those guys grabbed a flashlight and shined it at the man who was yelling, only to discover that he was asleep. And so one of the brothers sleeping next to him grabbed that guy by the shoulder and said, bro, wake up. He woke up, said, sorry guys. And everybody eventually went back to sleep. This morning, in this section of Isaiah, God is grabbing us by the shoulders and saying to us, wake up. You see this language in Isaiah 51, verse 9, awake, awake. In verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself. And in 52, chapter, or chapter 52, verse 1, awake. Awake. This is the theme, this is the focus of this section of Isaiah is, hey, wake up. This language is not unique to the book of Isaiah. 
We find it other places in Scripture. For instance, Romans 13, verse 11, Paul says, The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning. So this language of awakening teaches us very something, something crucial about spiritual life. It shows us an interesting and crucial insight to spirituality, and that is that it's very easy for us to live in unreality. After all, that's what a dream is, right? It's unreality. It's false reality. It seems real, but it's not real. It's not true reality. And many of us this morning are living in a false reality. We are dulled to the reality of who God is and what God has done. We are, as it were, sluggish and slow and apathetic and not awake to the fullness of who God is and all that He has done for us in Christ. Maybe you feel that dullness in yourself. Maybe you feel it in our church community. God wants to shake us out of that unreality, and His means for doing so is the gospel. The good news of what is really real about us and about God. Now here's the challenge. When I say the word gospel, many of you go, oh yeah, I already, I already know that. Checked that box, been there, done that. We have a tendency for some reason to think of the gospel as some gate that we pass through in our initial conversion, and then subsequently we sort of move on from it into whatever else there is. But the reality is that spiritual awakening, spiritual revival comes through a rediscovery of the gospel. The gospel is not something that we move on from once we become Christians, but rather it is the sum and substance of what it means to be the people of God. It is a message that we continually sink the roots of our souls more deeply into in ways that allow us to bear fruit, to experience all the fullness that God intends for us, spiritually speaking. The gospel is the means of spiritual awakening. Three years ago, my friend, Pastor Jared Wilson, wrote a book called Gospel Wakefulness. This is his attempt to get at the reality that Isaiah is describing and the reality that we're talking about. This idea that there's an awakening that comes in and through the gospel, but but that's something fresh and new and renewing and vibrant. Listen to his description of what he calls gospel wakefulness. Quote, I am not talking about waxing and waning feelings of intimacy with God, but about an experience of such awakening that it persists and endures, settling deep into the heart and conscience of a believer so that it carries through all emotional highs and lows. This is not a second conversion experience as it were, but rather a deeper and fuller appreciation of the first and only necessary conversion. 
a greater vision of what we perhaps only minimally perceived upon salvation. So do you catch the theological work that Jared Wilson's doing there? He's saying it's not something like a second conversion, but it is a greater vision, a deepening apprehension of the truth that we perhaps only minimally grasped when we were first converted to faith in Christ. So for some of you here this morning, the awakening God is after in your life is that initial conversion to faith in Christ. For many of you, the awakening that God is after this morning is is this sense of gospel wakefulness, this renewing of and deepening of the same truth that you believed when you were first converted. But wherever you find yourself this morning, that's my prayer for us. That's what Isaiah wanted his readers to experience. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to experience this morning is awakening, wakefulness, renewal. And so because that's Isaiah's desire, and because that desire is something only God can grant, I want to ask if you'd just pause with me once again, and let's just pray for just a couple seconds and ask God to do this work among us. So Father, we acknowledge our need to be awakened, and we acknowledge like my friend at the men's retreat that sometimes we can't wake ourselves up. We need to be awakened by another. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come this morning and wake us up. Remove the slumber from our eyes and the stupor from our minds. Bring us into the light of your truth and your goodness, we pray. Amen. In this passage, there are three aspects of the gospel that God wants to wake us up to. Uh, But first... Let's consider a really interesting insight about prayer that lies at the beginning of this passage. So so look how it starts. Isaiah 51 verse 9, it begins with us talking to God. Isaiah is our mouthpiece, our messenger. He's speaking on our behalf. And notice what we say, what the people are saying to God. What Isaiah on our behalf is saying to God. Awake! Awake! Put on strength, O arm of the Lord! Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? This is a reference back to the Exodus, to when God brought His people through the Red Sea. And and Isaiah is saying, God, wake up! Wasn't it you that did that? Do something like that again. I want you to see that God invites us to speak to Him in this way. To pray to Him in this way. This is not irreverent. This is not dishonoring. Rather, this is the common language of Scripture as God's people appeal to God. We see the same thing in Psalm 44, verse 23, where the psalmist says, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why is God okay with us telling Him to wake up? Because it reveals that we understand God to be a personal being. 
Only a personal being can be roused, can be provoked, can be awakened. And so in crying out to God this way, we display our conviction that God is in fact a personal being who can be moved by the appeals of His people. This is in contrast to false gods who consider the words of Habakkuk 2.19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. Sounds a lot like the language Isaiah has been using, doesn't it? Idols can't wake up. They don't have any breath. God is a personal being and He can be provoked by the prayers of His people. And so God invites us to this kind of faith-driven appeal. And notice that God answers this appeal, this call for Him to awake. In verse 12, He answers the call, awake, awake, with the assurance, I, I. That's always the basis of God's answer to prayer. The sum and substance of God's answer to our prayers always comes down to, I, I. Remember who I am. Let me comfort you and assure you with the reality of what's true about me. And this whole paragraph is full of excellent, comforting truths, but they really are all summed up in verse 16. At the end of verse 16, God essentially says, here's my resume. Establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. God says, you want to know what's on my resume? You want to know what I do? I, I established the heavens, I laid the foundations of the earth, and I've chosen you as my people. So just as surely as creation exists, just as surely as I made the heavens and the earth, that's how confident you can be that you are my people, that I have chosen you, that I have not forgotten you, that I am not asleep, that I have not neglected you, but I am right now present here working. I, I am He. So God answers our prayer with this word of comfort and then then He wants to now appeal to us. So, so we've said, God, wake up, why don't you do something? And he said, oh yeah, I, I wasn't asleep in the first place. I've got creation on my resume. I've got, I've got the calling of a people on my resume. And, and you're part of that people, I haven't forgotten you. But, but now he wants to turn the tables on us and, and, and invite us now to wake up. He's saying, the thing you're asking of me is actually the thing you need to do. So let me now speak a word to you, his word to us now in verse 17 is, wake yourself, wake yourself. So, so he's going to give us here three truths, three aspects of the gospel that we need to wake up to. The first one is the reality of forgiveness. Wake up to forgiveness. So here's what God says in verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. One of the reasons we tend to be sleepy, one of the ways we live in false reality, is by not reckoning with and taking seriously the wrath of God. After all, doesn't that phrase 
the wrath of God, doesn't that just sound sort of medieval to you? Doesn't it sound a little bit hellfire and brimstone sinners in the hands of an angry God? Doesn't it seem like the wrath of God doesn't quite fit a pluralist society? When we refuse to reckon with, when we set aside, when we don't understand the biblical teaching about the wrath of God, what we do is we minimize the gospel. We can't wake up to the reality, the majesty, the goodness of what God has done for us in the gospel unless we are awake to the reality of the wrath of God. And you see, in their situation, their circumstances were a manifestation of God's wrath. They're receiving this while they are in exile in Babylon, and that exile was a manifestation of God's wrath. It was part of the curse of God's covenant relationship with them. It was the the consequence of their disobedience and rebellion against Him. The prophets had been talking about this ever since the early stages of the Old Testament, and now it's come to pass. And so what he's saying is, you've drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. Your, Your circumstances right now in exile in Babylon are a manifestation of God's wrath. God's judgment. And and listen, when you think of God's wrath, I think we have this tendency to think of sort of God's personal vindictiveness because that's what wrath means to us. It's like somebody's really mad at me and somehow I've made them really upset. But you need to understand in the Bible's understanding of the wrath of God, it's simply an overflow and a consequence of the fact that God is just. What God's wrath means is God has a moral vision for the universe. God has set a moral standard. He's he's going to execute justice in the universe. And so when we sin, when we violate God's standard, when we live in evil ways, we experience the consequences of that. So God's wrath is not like His personal petty frustration with us. Get that out of your mind. God's wrath is holy. God's wrath is the expression and the overflow of His justice and His goodness. And... Part of what needs to happen for us to wake up to the good news of forgiveness, the good news of what it means that Christ has forgiven us, is we need to wake up to the reality of the fullness of God's wrath. And one of the ways that we can do that is to understand, as they did, that part of how God's wrath manifests itself is in the consequences for sin. So, right, there in exile in Babylon, and that's part of the consequence of their sin. And likewise, Romans 1 tells us the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the wrath of God is not merely something future that's like going to come at the end of time, but God's wrath is right now being revealed in the consequences of our sin, the, the things we experience because of our own disobedience. And so when we begin to see the consequences of sin in our own lives, and connect the dots that those are part of the outworking of God's justice. It deepens our appreciation for the good news of the gospel. It deepens our vision of all that it is that Christ has done. Let me again quote briefly from Jared Wilson's book, Gospel Wakefulness, he's drawn the connection that part of how we experience awakening to the gospel is in seeing the reality of our own brokenness and all the consequences of our sin. So let me read and and trust that this will be helpful to you in how he explains this. He writes this, 
Christ has paid the punishment for our sins. But we nevertheless live with the real world ramifications of our sins. Many times we live with these ramifications for our entire lives, long after we have repented. This punishment of consequences can be anything from the unwillingness of a spouse to reconcile with you, even after you've repented of infidelity, to the lasting detrimental effects on your body of drug and alcohol abuse, which you have been freed from. Our sin always has consequences. He goes on to say this, If you do not get the gospel, the consequences will always seem like more and more punishment from God upon you. They will be cause for questioning God's love. Can you relate to that? But those who understand the gospel know that the lasting consequences do not exist to make us feel unforgiven but to remind us just how much we've been forgiven of. They daily remind us of sin's damage. They daily remind us of what we've been freed from in Christ. When we rightly understand that the natural, normal consequences of our sin that we experience are part of God's justice in the world being seen and known. Part of a reminder that we have violated God's law. What they do is they remind us of what we've been freed from in Christ. They are a reminder of all that Christ has done to forgive us and set us free. It's how we wake up to the reality of forgiveness. And and look what God says to His people in Isaiah 51 verse 22 as He said now, you've drunken the bowl of My wrath. you've, You've swelled the cup of My wrath. But he says in verse 22, Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of His people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. This is the good news of the Gospel. God says, I've taken the cup of my wrath out of your hand. You will not drink it anymore. What is he talking about? What is he pointing to? Well, just connect the dots on the imagery. Why is it that at the Last Supper, Jesus hoists a cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Why is it that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Father, if it's possible, let this what? Cup pass from me. What cup is he talking about? He's talking about this cup. The cup of God's wrath that you and I deserve for our sin. Jesus is the one who took that and who drank it to the dregs. That's the good news of forgiveness. God wants you to wake up and see what you've been forgiven from and the great gift that it is to be set free, to be forgiven, to be released from the wrath of God for your sin. But that only matters to you if you think that God is holy and just. So the first thing God encourages us, invites us, provokes us to wake up to is the reality of forgiveness. The good news that in the gospel we are forgiven. 
But there's a second aspect of the gospel now that we need to wake up to, and it begins in chapter 52, verse 1. Freedom. Not only do we need to wake up to forgiveness, but we need to wake up to freedom. Look at chapter 52, verse 1. Awake. Awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. On Friday, my son Lewis and I went down to Cormdale's new building at Burt Street and we tore out some drywall. We spent a few hours just making a mess, doing demo. We, we were all dusty and dirty. We wore our old clothes and, and we were covered in dust and grime after that few hours. But that night, my wife and I had been invited by some friends to attend the teammates' fundraising gala over at the La Vista Conference Center where Tom Osborne and Warren Buffett and Condoleezza Rice were speaking, and it was in every way sort of a a dress-up affair. So what I didn't do was to leave the office at Birch Street in my drywall clothes and show up at the La Vista Conference Center. First of all, I went home, I took a shower, I put my clothes in the laundry, and I got out my starched white shirt. I got out my red Nebraska Huskers tie, even though I didn't even like Nebraska. Right? I, I put on my nice shoes. My wife got out her black dress and we dressed up. We put on our beautiful garments to go to that event on Friday night. God is saying to you, because of the gospel, you're free to put on some different clothes. You're free to take off the clothes of captivity and put on the clothes of dignity. See, The way that we live in sleepiness or unreality here is we act as though we're still in captivity even though we've been freed. Look at verse 2. It's exactly what God's saying. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. See, he's saying you're free, but you're still sitting there in the dust with bonds around your neck as though you're still a captive. You're not. I've set you free. So so get out your good clothes. Live like who you are. Live into the new identity you've been given as God's people. In verses 4 and 5 and 6, he repeats three times the phrase, my people, my people, my people. He's wanting to reinforce for you, you're my people. You have been set free. And part of the the good news of the gospel that we need to wake up to is the reality that we are free and given a new identity. We're no longer in captivity. We're no longer in bondage. We're no longer held by sin. We're free to live a different life, to embrace a new reality, to put on a different set of clothes. This is language that carries all the way through the Bible, this language of putting off and putting on. Changing clothes, as it were. Wake up, Isaiah says, to the freedom of the gospel. Now, freedom always means I'm freed from something and I'm freed for something, right? So so what is it that we're freed from? Well, we're freed from captivity and bondage. That's the language of this passage. And we're freed for communion and fellowship with God. So, So... God wants us to embrace not just the freedom that we've been set free from captivity, but now the freedom to experience and enjoy friendship and fellowship and communion with Him. Now look what he says in verse 6 and following. 
Therefore, my people shall know my name. In that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. He's saying, you're free not to know me. To know my name. To know my character. Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings what? Who brings what? Good news. Gospel. Who publishes peace. Who brings gospel good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. There's a great three word announcement of the gospel message. Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. This is language of communion. It's language of fellowship. It's language of God being present with His people. You're free in the gospel, not just from the chains of sin and bondage, but you're free to enjoy and experience communion and life with God. And Isaiah is saying, wake up to that and live into it. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we pray. It's so we can experience communion with God, so we can know what He is like, so we can experience intimacy and fellowship and communion with Him. This is one of the things the gospel frees us for. Wake up to forgiveness. Wake up to freedom. Finally, wake up to holiness. Verse 11, notice the same double imperative. He's been saying, awake, awake. Verse 11 begins with, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Okay, so this is language of leaving Babylon. This is a promise that you are going to go out and return, just like we've been talking about. God's promising here deliverance. But notice what he says, go out from there, purify yourselves. Go out from the midst of Babylon. One of the ways we fall asleep, one of the ways we live in unreality, is that we end up making peace with the culture around us, right? Sort of like, well, we're in, we're in Babylon. Might as well do as the Babylonians do. One of the ways we fall asleep to the gospel is in just appropriating and assimilating the practices and the values and the aspirations and the idolatries of the culture that we find ourselves in. That's always been true of God's people. It's not just true of us. But see, God says, depart. Go out from there. There ought to be in God's people a beautiful distinctness. The gospel invites us, calls us to holiness, to a different kind of living. And it's not a holiness that says, let's go over here and have our own Christian ghetto with our own Christian music and our own Christian books and our own Christian coffee mugs and our own Christian coasters and our own Christian bumper stickers and our own Christian radio stations, etc. I won't keep going. But rather, it's a distinctness that says... In the midst of Babylon, don't forget that you are Zion. In the midst of Babylon, you have a different identity. You are a different people. So purify yourselves. Live differently. What marks you as distinct is not your separation from the culture that you're in, but your distinctness within the culture that you're in. So the gospel invites us to holiness, and God says, wake up to the reality that I've called you to be a holy people. 
called you to be a counterculture within the culture. Do you know this morning that you belong to Zion, not Babylon? Can the people around you in life tell that you belong to Zion, not Babylon? Wake up to holiness. So God is calling us this morning to awakening, to wake up to to three aspects of the gospel. The forgiveness that's ours in the gospel, the freedom that's ours in the gospel, and the holiness that we're invited into by the gospel. Some of you, as you hear this, need to wake up for the first time. You need to experience the new birth, getting a new heart, being given by the Spirit of God, a whole new soul. The Bible calls that being born again. That's the first awakening that you need to experience. It's the awakening of conversion or regeneration. Many of you need to experience a post-conversion awakening. You need to experience what Jared Wilson was writing about when he said a, a greater vision of what perhaps we only minimally appreciated at our conversion. But wherever you find yourself this morning, God is calling us to wake up. God's grabbing us by the shoulders and saying, hey, wake up. Wake up to the truth about me and the truth about you and the truth about what I've done to redeem my people and live in light of that. Start living in reality, not in unreality. So the simple question that I think the Holy Spirit has for each of us this morning is is where are you living in false reality? Where are you asleep? Where are you dreaming? Let me help you reflect on that question in a very simple way as we close. Maybe you already know, as I ask the question, where are you living in false reality? Maybe you already know. But in case you don't know, let me suggest three different kinds of self-talk that you perhaps hear yourself saying. And these might be then three indicators of the false reality that you're living in. So some of you, as you think about how you talk to yourself, you find yourself saying this, if God really loved me, fill in the blank. If God really loved me, he'd change this. He'd do this. He'd show it in this way. If that's what you find yourself saying, can I invite you this morning to wake up to the reality of forgiveness? Can I invite you to see that God loves you so much that He handed to His only begotten Son the cup of wrath that you deserved? That's His demonstration of love for you. And if you do not see God as loving you, or if you have an expectation of what God would do if He really loved you, it might reveal that you have not really reckoned with the depth of your sin and the seriousness of God's holiness and the very beautiful expression of love that it is that Jesus took the wrath of God for you. What greater love could there be? For some of you, yourself. Your self-talk sounds like this, one of two things. I'm not worthy, or I can't change. I'm not worthy, or I can't change. And if those 
are what you find yourself saying inside your head, can I suggest to you that you might need to awake this morning to the freedom of the gospel? The freedom that it's not about whether you're worthy. Listen to me, God has given you new clothes. He's clothed you with the righteousness of Christ. He says, hey, get up out of the dust and put on these beautiful garments. I've provided them for you. Here they are. Put them on. You are loved. You are valued. You are accepted. You're invited in. Put on these clothes. And if what you find yourself saying is, I can't change, you need to embrace the freedom that you can, in fact, that what God has done in the gospel is to free you from the captivity of sin and usher you into communion with Him. You're free to pursue Him. You're free to experience true change. You're free by His Holy Spirit to become a different kind of person. That opportunity is open to you, and it's the benefits of what Jesus purchased for you on the cross. It's not true that you can't change. The good news of the gospel is you can. Because Christ has freed you from the bondage of sin. Some of you this morning, your self-talk might sound like this. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And if that's what your self-talk says, you probably often say that in situations where you know you're compromising your own values. You know you're living in Babylon instead of Zion, and you're trying to rationalize it to yourself. That's not that big a deal. I'm sure it's fine. I'm not a fundamentalist after all. If that's you, if that's what you find yourself saying, can I, can I suggest to you that you might need to wake up this morning to holiness? You might need to be awakened this morning to the fact that God has called you to himself so that you might live distinctly. So that you might live as a counterculture within the culture. And so it is a big deal. It's a big deal because you bear his name. And so your behavior and your attitudes and your dispositions ought to display the beauty and the majesty of the name that you've been given. God invites you to wake up this morning to holiness. Awake. Awake, God says. For some of us, we need to awake to the forgiveness that's ours in the gospel. For some of us, we need to awake to the freedom that we have in the gospel. For some of us, we need to awake to a new passion for holiness and a distinct kind of living within the world. But every one of us this morning needs to awake. So let's pray and ask God's grace to do that in us. Would you join me? So God, last week, Pastor Justin... (laughs) invited us to listen and to hear. And this week, we hear your call to awake. We hear you saying to us, wake up. And we know that you say that because you love us and because you desire us to live in the fullness of the reality of who you are. And so I pray this morning that you would accomplish by your Spirit awakening us to the good and beautiful truth of the Gospel. Father, for those who need to be awakened for the first time, to be given new life, to be awakened to the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you do that this morning? 
And for those of us who have grown dull and we need to be awakened and renewed in our apprehension of the same truths that we believed and perhaps have moved on from. Would you awaken us? God, thank you that you never change and that your promises are always true. And so, Holy Spirit, we just say we want to be a vibrant, we want to be an awake people. We want to be those who do not fall asleep, but who are awake, who are alert, who are sober-minded, and who live with a passion for your name and your glory until your kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. So by your grace, awaken us this morning. Make us that kind of a people. We pray in your name and for your sake. Amen.